reading from Acts 12 this morning. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some he belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on the very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because the country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of this Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of the Lord. To Presbytery this weekend, which is the quarterly meeting of all the ministers in a certain geographical area within the Presbyterian Church in America. It was in Carrollton and at Metro Crest Pres, and I, I know the pastor there, and usually the, the pastor of the church that's hosting is the one preaching. So I was running a little bit late and walking into the worship service, which is how every Presbytery begins, and the preacher had just gotten underway in the pulpit. And I walked in, I thought, that's not... David Rindenhauer, who is the pastor at Metrocrest. And it took me a minute because I immediately recognized the face. I thought, who is that? And I thought, oh, that's Richard Pratt. And Richard Pratt is a, a fairly notable Old Testament scholar. He's on staff at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And he runs Third Mill Ministries, which is a, a big organization that extends the gospel all over the world through uh, teaching and training materials. And 
Pratt was challenging us to consider Paul's very famous claim in Romans 1.16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel, which goes just like this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he challenged us, well, are you ashamed of the gospel? I sat there thinking, I said, yeah, sometimes I am ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of the gospel when somebody doesn't get healed. I'm a little ashamed of the gospel when a marriage isn't repaired. I'm somewhat ashamed of the gospel when it promises, you know, the idea of salvation that you will be restored and renewed and somebody just doesn't seem to be renewed or restored. I see, yeah, there's, there's some shame there. There's a little embarrassment because Paul's very claim is that the gospel is what? It's the power of God. Well, what do we do when we don't necessarily see that power on display? What is the alternative, perhaps, even to shame? And that's certainly a question that's on hand. In our passage, as soon as he asked it, I thought of, boy, that's Acts 12. Because you have James, the first apostle to be martyred, most likely beheaded. There's not much power in that in defending James. And there's Peter who's arrested. Where is the power of God on display in the midst of these situations? What we see happening, if we zoom out just a little bit in the book of Acts, is an escalation of battle. We've seen persecution begin to come upon the church, but the main persecutor was converted. Saul follows Jesus, and the persecution seems to go by the wayside. But with the rise of Herod Agrippa, we see an increase in persecution, and we see the sons of the serpent coming with uh, vigor against the sons of the woman. Right, a battle that has been pitched for all time. Right, since the sin in the garden, right, there have been those who would associate with the prince of the power of this air, and there are those who are called to unify themselves to Christ, and they are at war with one another. And that war does not cease right, until Jesus should return. And it's certainly the war that we see going on as Herod decides to come against uh, James and Peter and the church. And so how do we understand this battle? How do we understand what it means to have confidence in the power of the gospel, even when the story seems so contrary to what we would expect the power of God to be when exhibited on behalf of his people? Well, to do that, we need to start with Herod. Now, Herod's can be somewhat confusing, right, in the scriptures, because there are multiple Herod's, and they're not always overtly indicating to you which one that we're talking about. And so most people think of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod that's alive at the birth of Jesus. He builds the second temple, which will be destroyed in 70 AD. He's also the one that tried to kill all of the children under two years of age so that he could be sure to snuff out the Messiah. Now that is not that Herod. Herod the Great has been dead for some time. This is Herod Agrippa. It's Herod the Great's grandson. And Herod Agrippa, when he was a young strapping lad, was sent to Rome to be educated amongst the elite of the elite. Right? Agrippa grew up going to school with the future emperors of Rome. In fact, he ultimately lands his role as ruler of Judea because Claudius appoints him, right, who, um, ultimately the emperor Claudius, and Claudius and Agrippa went to school together. They were trained under the same tutors. They played on the same Roman playground. Herod, this Herod, Herod Agrippa, has grown up within the halls of power. 
And he knows how Rome works, right? To be wealthy is to be successful. The more people I can dominate, the more important I am as an individual. And so he exercises that power over Judea. And what's his role? And if you're appointed as a king or proconsul under the Roman Empire, your role is very simple. You keep that geographical region humming so it doesn't interfere with the economy of the empire. The last thing they want is for those crazy Jews who have been revolting for centuries over and over again to rise up again and to disturb the trade that's going on in that area. So Herod Agrippa has one of his chief aims is to keep his constituency happy. And who's his constituency? Primarily, it's the Jews. And he realizes that he finds favor with the Jews when he starts picking on this little sect that has no power, no authority, no gravitas with the people in power. And so he says, well, I'm going to see what happens when I put James to death. Captures James, probably beheads him. And what happens? Well, verse 3 says that he finds favor with the people. It pleased the Jews that he had done this. So Agrippa says, well, this is easy. I'll grab Peter too. But he waits. He says, I'm not going to execute him until after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right? I want to get the biggest bang out of this execution. And the Jews are distracted during their festival. So we'll wait. Throws Peter in prison and sees how things will proceed. Now notice that the tool... Herod is a man, Herod Agrippa is a man who lives within the vestiges of power that are informed by the prince of the power of this heir. And so his tool to wield his power is violence. This is how he will claim power and exert his influence. And notice how different the posture of the church is when it suffers this violence. It does not raise up in arms. It does not revolt. It's been the story for centuries before. But in verse 5 it says, So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Right? The sons of the woman say, so we don't know what's happening, but we're going to trust God and we're going to pray. And see what's happening. And presuming, you kind of have to assume that they didn't actually pray for his release because both Peter and the people when he shows up, which is a little section we skipped, are shocked that Peter is actually released. They, probably didn't, they were probably, probably praying for some, something less than death but are astounded by the actual power of God that is put on display on behalf of Peter. Now, when we consider Herod and the way that he lives in this world, we have to ask ourselves, really, do, are we characterized by, by Herod's way in this world or by the church's way in this world? Right? When, when challenges and frustration come, do you seek to exert violence and control, or do you seek a posture of trust and prayer. Now, I'm not pretending that some of you are, are so violent that you would, and you're so much like Herod that you're going out and exerting violence upon someone. But you're playing by the same playbook, so to speak, whenever you choose to manipulate someone or take advantage of someone in order to benefit, that you would dehumanize another person in order that your power or prestige or significance would be built up. That's the same type of thing that Herod is doing. So in these places where you may feel frustrated or you may feel threatened, is it an opportunity for you to exert control or is it an opportunity for you to exert trust and prayer? Years ago here I worked with a, a couple that wasn't very healthy and their marriage wasn't going very well. And one of the odd things about this couple was uh, the, the husband was trying to build relationships with men in the church and trying to grow in his faith. 
And he would make, uh, he would articulate the intention to go and participate in various activities that would build those friendships with other men in the church. But at the time that he would go, his wife would begin to say, no, I'd, I'd really prefer that you stay here. I'd like you to stay home. I need you. It hasn't been a good day. It hasn't been a good week. I, I so need you. Please stay here. What was going on was, you know, her identity and significance was bound up right, in his presence and the way that he would take care of her. And so she would manipulate him and prevent him from going to what was really good for him in order that she could get what she felt that she needed. And in that sense, right, she's, she's taking up violent hands in the terms of manipulation to try to control someone right, to get her kingdom. And we're all doing that to some extent. But we have to realize that when we do that, we live according to the rules of the kingdom that is not the kingdom of Christ. It's the kingdom of this earth. And it's not a kingdom that ever grants life. And we'll see that at the end. Right? It's that kingdom that Herod lives in and abides by is going to require his life. And that's the outcome of that kingdom every time. So we see this battle rising up as Herod uh, pushes himself against uh, the church. And we see that we have a decision to make whether we're going to identify with Herod's version of power with the church's version of power, which <laughs> the church's version of power is that you don't have any. And are okay to, to admit that and to embrace that because you believe that Jesus will be powerful on your behalf in the way that he chooses, which may not be the way that you choose. And so we see that play out profoundly in the stories of James and Peter. Right? Do you not think, what is the deal? Uh, Jesus uh, shows up in a profound and miraculous way to rescue Peter. Nobody shows up for James. You know, James even has a story that if you took the story of James, brother of John, uh, son of Zebedee, right, sons of thunder, out of the Bible, you really wouldn't lose anything. He doesn't get a name. He doesn't get a story. He doesn't get any magnificent contribution. And he dies a horrific death pretty early on. Peter gets to make a, a contribution that's recorded in history. And so James, you see James both... Uh, and uh, a life that doesn't, uh, you know, you might say, well, James met a terrible end, but he left such a mark. No, he didn't really. You wouldn't miss a whole lot if you took James out of the story. And just to be clear, a couple of people were confused this morning, right? This is James, brother of John, son of Zebedee. James that pops up later and writes the letter at the end of the New Testament is James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? It's confusing. Without, people needed last names, in the, in the New Testament. Right, so uh, James suffers this outcome. Peter is arrested. And just to, uh, to be clear about the miraculous nature of what's going on, if you look at uh, basically from verses 5 to 6 on through verse 11, Peter's arrested, and the language there indicates that they are following Roman custom, which on an important prisoner, you put four guards, two at the door, and then you'd have a guard chained to each side of Peter, right, to, directly to his arms. So the idea that he would escape is pretty preposterous. Unless you happen to have an angel of the Lord show up in the middle of the night, release the chains, tell you to get dressed, and run you out through the gates, which open magically as you approach them. He's delivered to the street. Up to this point, Peter says, this is so outlandish, I thought it was a dream. Right? In verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel 
and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. But he comes to that conclusion because he finds himself out on the street and the angel is gone. He thinks, oh, I, th- I thought this was a dream, but apparently it's not. And then he goes on to join uh, the church. But it's a radical display of God's power on behalf of the church, particularly on behalf of Peter. And, you, you know, you have to kind of ask at least one part of you, where was that for James? Man, Peter really gets to experience something amazing, and James doesn't get to experience anything amazing at all. In fact, what he experiences is rather awful. We might know, too, right, that Peter does have to experience something that, you know, this isn't a miraculous release, to be sure, but it's very interesting. If you, if you pay attention to the dates that are listed here in verse 3 and 6, Herod decides to wait, so the Feast of Unleavened Bread will pass. He says, I'm not going to execute Peter until after the Passover. So Peter goes to prison, and he's waiting during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says in verse 6 that God does not release him until the night before his execution. So God, in his providence, decided that it was just fine for Peter to sit in prison for seven days, expecting his execution at any point in time, only to release him at the 11th hour and 59th minute. God was very fine to let Peter sweat that out and spend a very long week uh, looking forward to nothing other than his death. And so again, the issue of, of God's power is raised. We confess that God is powerful. We confess that the gospel is the power of God, and yet we see that, that power uh, displayed or ex- executed, uh, probably not the best word, a little confusing, given all the executions that are happening or proposed, but God's power is, um, is, is, is enabled or put on display on behalf of Peter in a, a kind of profound way after making him suffer for seven days, and then it's not put on display at all uh, for James. And so is the gospel powerful? And you may be in a place where you feel like you've really felt the power of the gospel. So you may be in a place where you feel like the gospel isn't powerful at all. And in that is the case, then do you, do you feel ashamed of that gospel? Is it something that you, you're kind of putting back on the shelf because it's harder to really think and talk about the gospel when you're not as confident in it that it actually affects something or makes change in any regard? Well, we need to answer this question of how we understand God's power and how we understand our shame. But before we do so, we have to consider the end of this chapter. And just a word about, you know, we, I always hope that you will be, um, at least hope to help you make good readers of Scripture. And we're taking a whole chapter today. And inevitably, somebody will probably come up at some point and say, you know, that was a lot of text why don't we zero in and, and drill down? And some of you just, uh, some people will come up and say, I, I need some Greek and Hebrew. I don't feel like I've studied the Bible until I've gotten Greek. There's nothing wrong with Greek and Hebrew. But this is, this is my only point, is that meaning does not exist on the word level. Okay? And sometimes it is really important to drill down, but sometimes it's important to back up. And this is what I mean. Now imagine for a minute that I'm giving you a piece of paper with a text on it and asking you to be the interpreter. I give you a piece of paper, and it says run. And I say, will you interpret this for me? And you say, I, I don't know. I, maybe I better run. I say, now I'm going to give you another sheet of paper. Now it says, uh, run from the ball. And you say, oh, well, okay, maybe the situation here is I'm at a ball game, and there's a fly ball, and I'm, I need to run because I'm going to get hit. I give you another sheet of paper that says, well, run, run from the snowball. 
you think, oh, okay, well, this is a snowball fight. It's gotten out of hand or something, and I need to run. Somebody's throwing ice balls now. I need to get out of the way. I give you another sheet of paper that says, run from the snowball that's at the front of the avalanche. You think, oh, all right, well, this heightens the level. Now I'm in the mountains, and my very life is at stake if I don't run. Now, you see, with each step, you took in more context. And with each addition of context, the meaning became more clear. Now, this varies in importance, but notice what Luke is doing here. Luke begins what we call chapter 12. Luke didn't put chapter numbers in there, right? They're added much later. But this chapter 12 begins with the, uh, with the introduction of Herod Agrippa and ends with his death. That's a pretty good indication, right, as you're reading through Scripture, that this for Luke is a, is a unit of thought and should be considered as a whole. And that's why we're taking it in this fashion this morning and why it's very important to include the death of Herod and understand that in relationship to what we've covered so far. So a little background. Look at verse 20. All of a sudden, it seems a little confusing because the cities of Tyre and Sidon have entered the story, but you're almost living this story right now. What you're reading about in verses 20 and the next few verses are trade wars. Right? Very much like what we're experiencing now. See, the situation in the ancient world here is that Judea is a breadbasket. They grow and supply food to everyone all over the Mediterranean. And Tyre and Sidon are port cities. They ship the food to people all over the world. So if you read between the lines, what seems to be happening is Tyre and Sidon are frustrated with their deal. So they've come and said, Herod, they've done something that's made Herod really mad. Herod, though, holds all the chips because he holds the food. And so he's reacted in a way that have made Tyre and Sidon come back to the bargaining table and be like, oh, we're so sorry. In fact, we're so sorry and come to terms. Let's throw a big party for you. Let's honor you. And that's what they do. Herod puts on his best clothes. He goes out to the party. It's probably even attended by those who are there to exalt Herod, to, in a sense, worship Herod. Uh, because of what he's done, because this, you know they're trying to make peace after these trade wars have occurred. And so by the time you get to verse 22, the crowd is shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod's pride swells, which is exactly the point, right? He's the guy that's being honored here so that trade agreements will be kept in good terms. And yet in his pride, Herod, uh, as he's not only his pride, but as he's laying hands on the church, right? He comes to this place where he's so arrogant and so far from acknowledging the importance of God or acknowledging that his power as all authority stems from the divine, that God judges him. And in verse uh, 23, it says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now that was really fun in the first service because as we read that, kids gasped. And I'm, I start, boys and girls, it's not literal. He was not literally eaten by worms. This is a very common phrase in the ancient world to indicate that someone was judged by God or a God. Right? It's used both within a Judeo-Christian history and outside. Right? If you want to say that person not only died, but in his death was judged by God, you say that person was eaten by worms. That's what that meant. And interestingly, Josephus, who's a um, Jewish historian, actually tells the same story. And he says, uh, at this point of this party, Herod is doubled over with pain. He uh, re, um, 
retreats to his home for five days in which he can't get up and he dies of whatever's going on in his gut. But even Josephus on that side recognizes and calls it the judgment of God for one who would not give honor to God in the midst of being praised and treated as a God. This is reminiscent of a number of stories. In fact, some uh, Bible scholars think that uh, Luke is drawing from a story in Ezekiel um, when Ezekiel 28, when the prince of Tyre is judged to be so arrogant by God that he has to be thrown down. And God says, enough, I won't tolerate it anymore. Or it's reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar, who God renders to an animalistic state because he would not honor God or acknowledge his power as derived from God. It's a picture of God not taking his reputation lightly. And while he is long-suffering and very patient, you can go to a place in your arrogance and your pride where God simply decides that judgment must befall you and that that is the, the result of that story. And amazingly, even though James is dead and Peter is on the run, right, very odd part of Acts, Peter drops off the face of the earth. Right, he goes into hiding after this, pops up out of nowhere in Acts 15 for the Jerusalem council, falls off the face of the earth again, and we never hear of him again in Scripture. Tradition has it that he ends up in Rome and is crucified upside down. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. Right, but and when you look at the story and how it's unfolding, you think this isn't necessarily going that great for the church, even though Herod is judged. But then you read in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That even in the midst right, of this going on, of the persecution of the church, of people being Peter on the run and James being dead, that which is happening is affecting the expansion of God's kingdom. That the word... The testimony of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ is going out so that more people confess with their tongue and bend with their knee that Jesus is Lord. Well, we think that's not really the kind of power that we were hoping for, right? When we claim that the gospel is powerful, part of us, right, we would like to see an Avengers movie in which the angel of the Lord shows up and blocks the sword that's about to behead James and instead swings it and kills Herod. And the church takes over Jerusalem and moves into the places of power. And all those who are opposed to the church are cast down, right? It's the same story that, that, that Jewish uh, faith expected and desired to come about as they were approaching the arrival of the Messiah. And in that, we have to realize to some extent that our notions of salvation are extremely Americanized. When we talk about salvation and it being the power of God, well, Paul says explicitly what it's the power for. It's the power of God unto salvation. Right? And it's not a salvation that we would define. We like to make salvation. Well, if I'm saved, I get to be saved from pain and suffering. I get to be saved from economic distress. I get to be saved from hardship. I get to be saved from my kids messing up and so on and so forth. But this isn't what Paul's talking about. No, in fact... Paul in Acts 12 says, you know, you and I have no idea how our story is going to go. You might get Peter's story, amazing, miraculous intervention, but you might get James' story. You might get beheaded. And you don't know which is going to come, and your hope isn't in the story as it's going to unfold here, right, apart from your faithfulness. The hope is that salvation delivers you to a place of vindication in which you're reunited with the risen Christ. Because the alternative is Herod's story. And Herod's story will only end in judgment. 
yesterday morning, the, uh, the ordinance got up to preach at Presbytery. And this happens every Saturday at Presbytery. It begins with men who, uh, young men who, well, usually young men, who want to be licensed to preach have to preach a sermon for Presbytery that gets approved, and then they're licensed to preach in a denomination. And a young man got up um, to preach yesterday. His name is Alex. And I don't usually pay very close attention to, frankly, to these sermons. I've heard a lot of ordinary sermons, and they're usually very predictable, and he started off kind of predictable. And halfway through, he's used more Tolkien quotes than I care to hear in 10 sermons. And so I basically almost started to write him off in terms of working and not paying attention. But he, he kind of finds his groove midway through. And, and one thing that was bothering me, he kept choosing quotes that weren't nor, the normal quotes, right? And the, you, there's no faster way to bore Presbytery than to use uh, overuse token unless you're overusing Narnia quotes, in which you may not pass at all uh, because it's so often abused. But he's going through. He's picking different quotes. It's a little bit odd. He kind of finds a stride. And about halfway through, he starts to talk about hope and and the, the air in the room changes. It was really quite remarkable. I had to put my stuff aside because this guy starts talking about hope like his life depended on it. I thought, what in the world? And so yeah, I was captivated for the rest of the time. And it kind of, it took, you know, it took Presbytery by, by surprise. And so he gets down and calling Peters, the pastor, and he said, Peters gets up to compliment him, but he also lets us know, it says, that was a hard sermon. Uh, Alex's two-year-old died three months ago in his sleep, just inexplicably, of SIDS. And uh, they've been going through that anger and that grief and that hurt. And that sermon was born out of that. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. Right? He, he did need hope. Like his life depended on it. But in the midst of living a James story, right, of suffering that, says, I, I believe in a story, right, that isn't my, isn't a salvation from the suffering here, but is an ultimate vindication that he gets to see his boy again, right, and be joined to him. And so that's the hope that is on display, even in the midst of such suffering in the early church, right, that James would be beheaded and that Peter would be on the run, and it doesn't look good, and then you get 24. The word multiplies, and it goes forth, and more people bend the knee, and more people confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. So I don't know for you or for me if we're called to the story of James, or we're called to the story of Peter, or something in between, but I know it's faithfulness in that story that prevents us uh, from living the story of Herod and finding his end. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful this morning uh, that you love us to the extent that you would run into the brokenness of this world and rescue us. Would you forgive us for the ways in which we Americanize your gospel and make it a gospel of greed so that we would hope it delivers to us everything that we want uh, instead of what you desire for us. And so would you cause our hope and our gaze to be uh, fixated upon the right thing, which is the ultimate vindication we will have at our death or your return, whichever comes first. And until that time should come, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, whether we be frustrated with a story like James or uh, amazed at a story like Peter's. We pray that uh, you would help us 
to walk faithfully down whichever road you would call us. We ask that you would strengthen us toward this task at the table this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.